reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is reasonable service. And be not conformed to the world, to this world, but ye be transformed transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that is good and acceptable, acceptable and perfect will of God. It is a, another blessed occasion this Lord's Day morning for you and for me to be able to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. There is a habitation. We just sang that, that very challenging and powerful song, reminding us about that place where angelic armies are currently residing. And you and I look forward very much to being among, among that number some golden day. We've come to the 28th day of the month, and so it's the last Sunday in the, in the month of July. And as you can probably tell, our lesson today will surround a topic that perhaps will be more fully explained on the next slide. The ladies' Bible class has for some 11 months been involved in a study of authority. And as each one of those months have brought various aspects and topics of authority, this particular month has to do with rules. Rules, are they to be kept? Are they to be broken? Who makes them? And to what degree should we appreciate their placement, at least as it comes to morality? That'll be our subject, our topic this morning. The class that normally meets on Tuesday evening, as the ladies assemble at 6 o'clock, that will not take place this, this coming Tuesday. So uh, just look forward to another word from Denise for, as far as the next study beyond that one. But this coming Tuesday, no ladies' Bible class. So please, ladies, keep, keep that in mind if you would. But we will consider nonetheless some aspects related to that 11th lesson in the book as a part of our study time this morning. As you'll notice on that slide, doesn't it seem fair to say that most individuals, even from an early age, have a fairly good appreciation of what the word rule indicates? But yet quite often, at least as we get older, there certainly can be a great lacking in the application of that understanding. We often tend to think rules are there to be bent, maybe even to be broken. When it comes to the rules that God has set forth, what should be our appreciation? Today, may I say, let's use the first part of the lesson to reflect a bit on those generalities, and then the latter part to focus on a number of specifics that occur. Let's first make some general comments about rules. First, a definition. Using the Merriam-Webster dictionary, you can see that definition at the top. A prescribed guide for conduct or for action. That is to say, a prescription for what should be done and the way that it ought to be done. But as you can well tell, we're accustomed to rules in so many avenues of life. Certainly, you can think about some of those things at the top of that slide. Sports. When individuals play in a sporting activity, is it not anticipated that there are rules that govern the participation? On the basketball court, there are at least two or three referees that are supposed to, in fact, make note of infractions of those rules whenever they take place. On a football field, 
I've lost track how many field judges and other judges there are. Isn't there somewhat around 10 referees or judges? But the point is, rules are there intended to be kept. And every time that a violation is made, it is supposed that there's a penalty. But it isn't only true in sports, is it? What about in other avenues of life, like the banking business? Our federal government, as it watches over the ongoing matters of banking and commerce, isn't it true that there are thousands of regulations that are expected to be followed? And if those rules are not followed, there are major penalties that are to be enforced. In education, my profession, there are also rules that are anticipated. Not only do the faculty know them, the students are expected to know them, I believe we're each aware of the fact there are rules and lots of them. And one of the things that seemingly is understood so well about the middle of that slide is that when those rules are violated, there are penalties that go with it. There are consequences, and those consequences may be more or less, but nonetheless they're there. Surely in light of all those things, let's make a statement. In any meaningful relationship, there will have to exist rules if that relationship is to be beneficial, successful, and continuing. Let's highlight that again. In any relationship, there will have to be rules. That's the way God made us as responsive to the circumstance, but rules that govern it and rules that will allow each party involved in it to understand what his or her role is and how to be a party to a successful such arrangement. If that concept isn't there, there will be serious consequences. There will be unhappiness. There will be, in fact, dissatisfaction. And furthermore, there will often be serious consequences for failure. At the bottom of that slide then, let's make applications to our society. Rules. It's one thing to apply them to a sporting event. It's another to apply them perhaps to the matters of banking. But what about society at large? Are there rules for moral behavior? Are there rules that dictate and determine what constitutes acceptable morality and ethical characteristic? Our society has reached the point when many are happy to say no. I've put in quotation marks, and maybe you've heard something like it. Individuals are so excited, in fact, they make demands. You take me as I am, and don't expect me to change. You accept me this way satisfactorily, regardless what characteristics they may have. In other words, they're making the claim. There are no rules for what constitutes morality. You accept me like this, I'll accept you however you are. And we shouldn't expect either of us to change or, in fact, to apologize for anything that we may be or have done. That's the kind of place in which it seems our society has come. As you and I are about to see today, we're going to find that is not correct and it is not acceptable. Sometimes even religious organizations have bought into a part of this. Have you ever heard statements like, a religious organization say, come as you are. And quite often there's nothing more said as if repentance will be needed. 
you come as you are and will take you as you are. I may say then all the Bible verses that relate to repentance and relate to change and relate to acceptance of God's rules are thrown out the window if there's nothing more than that. Let's continue that like this. Here's a slogan that you may have heard. A slogan that seems to be an ongoing mantra that many would happily accept today. Isn't it true they're quick to say, aren't rules made to be broken? Aren't rules made to be bent? Now, that particular slogan we're going to find to be wrong. So please don't take that as a correct thing in the lesson. I merely present that as that's the ongoing way that many wish to view rules. They're simply made to be broken. They may apply to you, but they don't apply to me. What's more, let's make a settlement of something up front. These rules of morality, that is to say, the determination of what is wrong and what is right, who makes these rules? Upon whose authority do they stand? Without doubt, it is God that makes all rules related to morality. It is God that makes it. It is not me. It is not you. It is not any association of humankind. Look at some of these verses with me. In Psalm 119, that, that very beautiful presentation about the Word of God in the Old Testament. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. To say thy word is true from the beginning, that is to say God's word is right and has been so from the beginning. Now that's verse 160. Back up 32 verses to verse 128. I esteem all thy precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. Might you and I appreciate that there's a distinction made. There is what is right, and then there's what is false. You and I need to appreciate then that when it came to that Old Testament era, or when it comes to today, it is only the God of heaven that dictates, that determines what is right, that determines what is moral. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, wasn't it rather beautifully exclaimed that our God is the God of truth. He's the God of right. All of that's contained in that one little verse. Surely in light of all of that, we can appreciate today, it's not in man to make his own way morally. Surely it's fair to say, and it's what I have next on the slide, the concept of a covenant. A covenant is an agreement, a compact, a pact, if you will, between parties. And God has, in fact, presented His covenant to the human family. It's a better covenant, Hebrews 8, 6. And you and I must appreciate its existence. That covenant has all the rules of morality within it. The human family, as you and I appreciate it, can then ask this question. What happens if we reject it? What happens to any society if they reject the rules of God and attempt to make their own rules of morality? May I suggest there have been those who've tried it. One of the greatest teaching methodologies is to look at the behavior of those who've tried something. If you want to see how something works out, look at those who've tried it. And so it is in the book of Judges. I know on Sunday mornings we have already studied five chapters and somewhat more. 
But when we arrive at chapters 17 and following, we will find the inspired record of a civilization who tried this. They tried to make their own rules of morality. Would you look at a couple of verses drawn from those five chapters? First of all, Judges 17. As we start with that one, verse number 6 will be our focus. Judges 17, verse number 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Hold that sentiment in mind. At that particular time, there was yet no appointed king in Israel. There was the recognition of the judges, however. And nonetheless, every man, every individual made choice of what was right in his or her own eyes. Now turn over to chapter 21, same book. This time, verse 25. It's the last verse in the whole book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now those two verses are a sort of bookend. Chapter 17, verse 6. Chapter 21, verse 25. I wonder what happened in between them. That was descriptive of the life and times of Israel when there was no king in Israel, but rather every man attempted to determine what was right in his own eyes. Well, I'll not take the time to read those five chapters. But one of the things we will find in great detail when we do so in our Sunday morning class will be this. It was one of the darkest, one of the most sordid, one of the most awful periods in all of Israelite history. The moral fabric of the nation had crumbled. Each person was doing what he or she wanted, the way he or she wanted, and there was no consideration for propriety in terms of morality, no understanding of following the rules of God in terms of what was right. It was behavior that was sickening, disgusting. It turns your stomach to think about what was happening. Now jump forward to today. Is it not then the case that if that society tried it, should we think that things will go any differently today? If we as a people, as a nation, strive to make our own rules, what's right and wrong? We are bound to fail. And it is bound to produce a sickening, disgusting society. One where there is fear on every hand. One where there is no regard for the person of another. There is no understanding of the character and value of life. All of that will crumble because God determines the morality that relates to it. Surely in those regards, let's close that slide. Because there was a day in our country... Turn back the clock a hundred years or so. It's not to say that everybody then was a devout Christian. But at least those who weren't still understood that there was a basis of morality, at least most people, and that it was to be respected. We have come to a point where that's no longer true. It's true, there's a lot of people in our land that aren't Christians. They really don't have much interest in the Bible. But not only that, they have no regard for the nature of the authority upon which morality rests. With all of that said, let's look now very quickly, admittedly, at several things in the ladies' book that is included in this lesson. 
things that cause us to almost recoil in disbelief as we reflect honestly and forthrightly upon the rules in our society and how many people choose to look at them. We've already learned today that God determines the rules of right and wrong. And many have come to the point where they, though, think they are happy to try to do this. Let's start with a so-called sexual revolution. In the 1960s and the 1970s, there was a great change in the perception related to sexual things in our country. I have simply defined it at the top. One way to define that movement was this. That movement that challenged traditional codes of behavior related to sexuality and interpersonal relationships. And as you read that, when you see the word traditional, you think biblical. In other words, this was a movement that called into question God's biblical way of doing things sexually and put in man's viewpoint, put in man's consideration of it. And you'll quickly notice several particulars of it. It involves the following. Sex outside a traditional monogamous marriage, there's nothing wrong with it, they would say. After all, isn't that a passion that is in the human frame? Fulfill it any way you want to. That's what they tell us today. That's what this movement put into place. As far as considering even further, you'll notice the Bible does have a name for this. It's called fornication. The Bible has a name for sexual activity outside a covenant monogamous marriage. The Bible calls it fornication. Look at some of these verses. In Ephesians 5 verse 3, Paul, as he wrote to the church at Ephesus, warning them about the city in which they existed and the kind of influence of that society, he pointed out to them, don't let this even be named among you because you can't go to heaven like this. Although society may in fact prance forward, greatly encouraging freedom in this area, God says, my rule of morality is no. Rules are not meant to be broken. God's rules are not meant to be broken. In Galatians 5, verses 19 and following, we have an extensive listing of the so-called works of the flesh. The first two in the list include this one. And God says no. Now one thing we have to realize up front then... God says in His rule, no. And yet the world says, why not? It's fun. It's pleasurable. Don't you want to go with a gusto? And you and I must appreciate that God's rules are absolute. They are not meant to be bent. And they certainly cannot be broken. For that reason, look at the next verse. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 2. If one wishes to know how to avoid fornication, this verse tells us, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Didn't say girlfriend. Did not say mistress. Let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Only in that recognized relationship of marriage is there thus what is not fornication. Anything else is fornication. Now, I realize that's narrow, but that isn't my rule, it's God's rule. 
Let's close that slide then with, again, what are some obvious implications in our modern society. We've seen what God's rule is. Look at what mankind teaches. Are you aware of the fact that in our school systems, due to the federal government's presentation of the curriculum that is mandated to be taught in the public school system, it is not abstinence anymore. It is safety. It's okay to have it. It's just you make sure you do it safely. Does that sound like God's rule? That sounds like nothing but advertised fornication. And yet that's what our youngsters are taught. That's what they are told. Look at the next example. Are you aware that in our land there is now a recognized reality called open marriage? It's not one man and one woman. It may be two men and three women. It may be five men and seven women. However many is involved. And they openly enjoy intimacy with each other. That's just another way of describing fornication. There have been those who have actually pondered that after the Supreme Court's decision of June of 2015, that one may be next. That may next be legalized. I hope we each never lose our shock at such a thing. Look at the last one. As Denise and I were noting some of the factors touching this aspect of the lesson, did you realize that in Europe there is a sex festival? There's also some lesser-known ones here in America. Can you believe it? Where for a period of a few days, there's the ongoing promotion of this. Freedom in men and women as all of it takes place. And I'll say no more about it. All of that is what has come out of the sexual revolution. But look at what other thing seems to go right along with it. God's rules concerning divorce. God does have rules about this. Let's start at the top. All we mean by this is a so-called easy termination of marriage. You and I know how easy it is. You can see the billboards. You can even see the advertisements in the classified sections of the paper. For about $125, anybody can get a divorce, whether you have children or not. That says how much we care about marriage. It says how much we care about the covenant called marriage. You can get rid of it that easily. But yet on this slide, notice again how different that is from the time-tested, beautiful law of morality that God has put in place. In Genesis 2, the opening book of the Bible, there was one man, Adam, for one woman, Eve. God married them for life. That's the way it was. Now, we quickly found that man tried his own tactic in chapter 4, and there was two wives for one man. Jesus said in Matthew 19, it never was intended to be that way. It never was intended to be appreciated in that fashion. Surely in that light, note the following trend with me. I just put together a few numbers. I chose to start in the year 1900. That's been almost 120 years ago now. The divorce rate in our land was 0.07%, according to the metric by which that's gauged. Turn the clock 30 years. The divorce rate had more than doubled. Turn the clock 50 years. The divorce rate had almost quadrupled. Turn the clock to 1975. 
the divorce rate had increased by almost a factor of seven. Sevenfold as many divorces in 1975 as there was in 1900. What changed? Had God's law changed? Well, of course not. It was the same law of God, but mankind was trying to make his own rules. I'm tired of her. I'll put her away and get me another one. She says, I'm tired of him. I'll put him away and get me another one. The easiness with which divorce had become a reality. Finally, in the year 2008, you'll notice the actual divorce rate seems to have decreased a little bit over the last few years, but it's still enormously high. Mankind trying to make his own rules. All the while, God said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Jesus made that statement. And even those who heard it appreciated how hard it was, how narrow it was, and how demanding it is. You recall in verse number 10, when the apostles heard Jesus say that, they said, Lord, if it be so, then it's better not to marry. They knew how strict that was, and it hasn't changed. How important it is that we make sure that any parties that enter into marriage understand the permanence of it, understand the demand that's there, and that God's rules must be the supreme ones. Let's close that slide like this. You may notice the impression then that this can easily leave or the consequences of it on those who have chosen to intermarriage. So those who marry but then get out of it in a way that's not according to the Bible, they don't have a right to remarry. They don't have the blessing of God to enter into that second union. In fact, Jesus said they'll be in an adulterous relationship if they do this. When you and I give thought to that, we appreciate first how special marriage is. How wonderful it can be if God's laws are followed, but what consequences there are if those rules are not followed. As you can see in the class that the ladies' lesson involves, these two only brings us to notice another one. And as these are mentioned, you can begin to see time and again how that rules, man has chosen to break God's rules or to put his own in place. Look at the third one with me. It's the so-called pornography problem. No, I suppose there's always been a pornography issue. But true enough, oh, 50 years ago, if one pursued it, you had to find your way into some store, I suppose, and get a magazine. So at least you had to face someone and buy this thing. Now, with the proliferation of the Internet... Pornography can be had without anybody else knowing it. Just access it by way of websites and get that access so readily to it. And those who seemingly have done studies in this indicate it is an enormous problem. Tens of thousands of pornographic websites accessed every second in our country. There are times that there are individuals who are known in the church and it comes out that they are guilty of this and they are addicted to it. 
I say this to simply say, as the ladies' class would have emphasized, and you'll notice it on the slide, this is serious. And certainly our young boys must be keenly aware of it. I mentioned computers a moment ago, but let us not forget cell phones and the access to it that way. The Bible, however, condemns it. May I invite you to notice the Greek word from which that comes is pornea. Pornea. That's the Greek word for fornication. This is nothing but a kind of fornication. It's nothing but something that the Bible also condemns. We must be cautious and careful, all of us. Addiction to it, I'm told, can happen so easily. Look at some of these verses. Matthew 5, 28. If a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, as Jesus made that statement, can you imagine in that ancient day when people tended to dress far more modestly than today, and Jesus then said it. What about today when it seems there's such a looseness with regard to how one dresses? May I say, adultery can be easily had in the heart. And if so, notice again, that puts one in a position before God of sin. Needless to say, as you close that one, the harm that can be done to an individual, it scars your psyche. And it will in fact scar you to the point that even when you do wish to enter into a lawful marriage, your relationship with that other person has been scarred because of this kind of thing in which you've involved. It's a serious thing. But look at the fourth one. Abortion. The nation's psyche has been numbed to the point. As we attempt to make our own rules and do what we like to do, we've now legalized the killing of babies. We've legalized it. That was done in 1973 by the Supreme Court's decision. But I would offer you at least some statistics. They never cease to be nothing less than alarming. Do you realize that every single minute, tick off 60 seconds and 75 abortions have occurred worldwide on average? Think about the number of innocent babies we're killing. Not only that, look at this one. If you just translate that into a day basis, that's 108,000 babies every day worldwide. Translate that into a year, that translates to approximately 40 million babies a year worldwide. Now we can narrow it down to our own country. We in America still have a serious problem with it. In America, every single day on average, over 2,500 abortions. Shocking, isn't it? In a land that at least at one time I think it would have been regarded as a strongly Bible-believing nation, we now are happily killing over 2,500 babies a day. As you extend that number, that makes 935,000 children every year in our country killed. That's almost unbelievable. But yet that's where we are. Has God's rule ever changed on this point? As early on as Exodus 25, we noted very well what happened when a baby, yet in the mother's womb, 
was killed. Has anything changed? Has God's will changed in this matter? At the bottom, let's look at just a very brief consideration. How sweet it is to think about that babe in the womb of a mother. And I chose that word carefully. In the New Testament, the word babe describes what's in the mother's womb and also describes after the birth has taken place. It's the same word. And yet we in America want to somehow treat them so differently as if what's in the womb is somehow not alive or not human. And yet it is human after it's born. When Jesus was in the womb of Mary, He was called the babe, Luke 2.41. After birth, still called a babe. Life begins at conception. And in Psalm 139, verses 14 and following, I'll praise Thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are Thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Even while I was formed in the womb of my mother, Thou knewest me. God is aware of that baby that's in the womb of its mother. Surely in that light, in Isaiah 49.1 and Jeremiah chapter 1, in both instances we have reference to God's knowledge of the prophet before the prophet was born. Today I wonder, as we've put to death all these children, what great scientists or politicians or lawyers or doctors have we put to death? simply because we chose to pursue the individual choice and right of a person rather than God's law of morality. Certainly makes one think twice, doesn't it? Let's close our lesson, though, with one more. Number five. Every one of these rules that we've highlighted have been our nation's attempt to, re to change God's rules. And I entitled the lesson, Rules to be Kept or Broken. God's rules are meant to be kept. And when they're broken, it leads to harm. It leads to dissatisfaction. It leads to hurt. It never goes well when God's rules are broken. And yet, in the last one, this one is also so shocking. You and I know well the current state of gender confusion that's in our country. We might begin with homosexuality where it was understood at a time what marriage was. And there wasn't a nation on the planet that called that into question until about 20 years ago. And then there came to be various civilizations, various groups of people who wanted to apparently redefine marriage, though you cannot redefine it. Since God defined it, only He can redefine it. And now our nation has joined the ranks of those who have legalized same-sex unions. Notice I don't call it marriage. It's same-sex unions. In the Supreme Court case of Obergefell v. Hodges in June of 2015, our Supreme Court legalized same-sex unions and placed it on equal footing to traditional marriage. We're now living with the consequences of that decision. Among those consequences, of course, you and I know how that God has always condemned that behavior. It is a choice in behavior. You aren't born that way. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And yet amongst those choices, you'll notice now it's begun to appear in light of allowing individuals to choose whether they're males or females. 
What? <laughs> you would think that would be known from an incredibly early age, probably two or three. And now we're going to attempt to allow individuals to choose whether they want to be a male or a female. May I say, that kind of confusion comes from Judges 17, verse 25, when every man does what's right in his own eyes. That kind of confusion is nonsense. God's rules set out what morality is and what is right behavior. And so as you and I close that slide, certainly we feel for individuals in those circumstances, but it doesn't change God's laws. God's rules are meant to be kept. You'll notice at the top, entrance to heaven depends on it. If we choose to not keep them, it is we who shall face the consequences. In Revelation 22, verse 14, the last page in God's wonderful book, He says, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. So if you don't do the commandments, you will not be allowed to enter. May you and I always respect, regard, and obey the rules of God, for they're not to be broken. They're not meant for that. And so, as we close that slide, we've been reminded today about right and wrong as God's morality is set before us. May we pray for our nation. May we pray that our direction may develop again into what would be in accordance to this book. For the path we're treading is littered with so much hardship, so much evil, so much hurt, and so much suffering. Today, as you and I analyze our life, are you and I keeping God's rules? Oh, we may not have been guilty of any of those things in particular, but what about the other rules found in the Bible? Are we keeping them too? If you are not a faithful Christian today, you realize His rules for salvation are these. You must be a member of the church, and the only way you can do that is to be baptized into it. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Have you believed in Jesus, repented of your sins, confessed His name, and been baptized? If you have, live faithfully. But if you haven't, why not do that today? Jesus died for you. He purchased the church that you might be a part of it. If you have become a Christian but aren't faithful today, come back to your first love. The Lord pleads with you, begs you to come, but He leaves the decision to you. If you'd like to make a confession of error, repentance of that, we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. If today the Lord invites you to come, and we do as well, at this very moment while together we stand and while we sing.